Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the battle continues between the Ford government and Ontario's education workers, we'll give you the latest on that. Ontario is proposing to remove land from the protected green belt in order to build at least 50,000 new homes, while adding new land elsewhere, or so they say. A lot of people upset about that in Hamilton, and we'll discuss it. And why the ideology of the new right is so dangerous. A great op-ed piece that we're going to discuss. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, Premier and uh, Education Minister are still going on with the media about, uh, well, his olive branch, I guess, uh, to the QP workers who are not on the job today, but you knew that already. Uh, Parents all over Ontario, of course, having to make alternative arrangements. And uh, we're not sure how long that was going to go on. Uh, maybe there's some clarity there to uh, try to talk about that and a few other uh, provincial issues. Pleased to welcome back to the program, Sabrina Nanji, publisher of the Queen's Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, good to have you with us on a very busy day uh, in provincial politics. I guess the Premier just wrapped up his uh, presser. Were you surprised by uh, the, the the deal that he's offering here? Yeah, I think that was kind of my big takeaway. Uh, you know, just stepped away from the, from the Premier's press conference, and I think, you know, a, a significant move from him, basically saying that he'd be willing to take Bill 28 off the table, repeal it. This is, of course, the big controversial hammer that the Ford government used to impose a contract, um, ban a strike from QP education workers. Obviously, we know they uh, have walked off the job anyway. You know, kids were out of class. Uh, and and this is a, you know, I, I would say p- perhaps a capitulation a little bit because obviously both sides have been escalating in recent days. You know, they were both at the Ontario Labor Relations Board over the weekend, you know, kind of solidifying, um, you know, whether the strike is legal or illegal. And that would kind of clear the way for the government to impose these hefty fines. Um, but on the other hand, there was also a poll that came out uh, over the weekend that showed, you know, that. People are really paying attention to this issue. Um, they're they're aware of kind of the details of, of what's happening, uh, and of course, you know, in in times like this with sky high inflation, there's a lot there's a lot going on a lot on people's minds. But obviously, this is something really important that they're paying attention to, and they you know a majority over sixty percent are actually placing the blame on the Ford government for kids being out of class. Uh, there was also rumors of a general strike where public and you know even potentially private sector unions would stage a a walk-off for at least one day which would you know essentially bring the province to a halt so it it kind of seemed like something had to give and it seems like the premier has maybe uh started to nudge that along this morning kind of reminded me i was mentioning on the show earlier the mike harris days you know when uh, harris took over with his common sense revolution in 1995 and, uh, and the public sector unions just went ballistic about some of the things he was suggesting. Uh, and they had the big rally. They shut down the province, too, it's, uh, at various times to try to get that done. And, and Doug Ford remembers that, I'm sure, too, and probably doesn't want to be that guy this time around. So uh, trying to, I guess, you know, do some damage control and stop some of the bleeding here. I was surprised, uh, the, the Abacus data uh, survey that you just referred to, uh, how insistent the people were here that this was the provincial government's fault as is and as the, the abacus folks broke down even conservative party supporters even those that voted for doug ford uh said that even if they liked the way that he's getting tough with with labor unions they didn't like the way that he did it you know they using the the notwithstanding clause so he's uh he's feeling the heat i would think yeah i think even today and kind of the tone of the press conference you can tell you know that uh, we've been uh, i've been covering ford for a long time i know you've been paying close attention to him like you can tell this has really gotten under his skin and, and we have seen you know ford kind of pivot in the past when faced with public pressure and, and obviously he's feeling that uh, i think 
we saw him trying to flip the script. He basically flat out said, you know, we didn't do anything wrong here. This is all cutesy, but I'm still willing to take off this very controversial legislation. And, and don't forget, you know, edu the Education Workers Union had said uh, just days ago that they were willing to, you know, get back to the bargaining table, call off the strike action as long as Bill 28 um, what was taken off the table. And so it, it kind of seems like this might be the beginning of that. Um, of course, you know, we're going to be hearing from the unions in, in just over an hour now uh, uh, at their own press conference. And I, I do think that, you know, everyone's going to be paying attention to Queen's Park across the country. Um, that, you know, Bill 28 itself is kind of this big existential threat to, to unions. You know, if a government is willing to use a notwithstanding clause to impose a contract, during tough bargaining, I mean, what's the point of a union? And I think also, you know, for Ford in particular, uh, he he worked very hard. You know, his camp worked very hard in the last election to win over um, union support. Now, you know, a lot of that came from the private sector, as, as Ford mentioned today, but we have seen every single union that endorsed Ford in, in, in the PCs in the June campaign, you know, pivot and they, they've changed their minds. You know, Ford did away with that with one stroke of a pen with Bill 28. And so he's feeling the heat from a lot of sectors right now. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, guys like Unifor and Leuna, which were big supporters and uh, were key elements in him winning the election, of course, have both come on side with QP in this situation, uh, which may have surprised him, I think. You know, you might have thought, hey, I got these guys in my corner. Uh, but uh, there's a the sense of solidarity, I guess, when you're in a situation like this. I, I was kind of interested in the wordsmithing, though, and I'm glad you touched on that, Sabrina. Uh, the, the whole tone of the press conference was, look, at this is tough on the parents, so here's what I'm going to offer. Really, uh, what he was quote-unquote offering was agreeing to the CUPE demand. Yeah, I, I think certainly, um, you know, I, I will wait to see what the official word is at the press conference later today, but just some folks that I've been texting with from the, the union side, uh, I think they are calling this, you know, a bit of a victory. They're, they're saying that their action to now ha has worked. So, uh, you know, I, I think we'll see because it's, of course, one thing for Ford to get up at the mic and say it to parents in front of families and everyone watching. And it's another to see, you know, what's happening at the bargaining table. I mean, interestingly enough, we didn't hear from Education Minister Stephen Lecce. Uh, I think I've complained before about some of his talking points, but I think it would have been interesting to hear it from the minister who's kind of, you know, the lead uh, for, for the government on this file say those things. But but this, I think, you know, and, and this battle has been a, a PR war, absolutely. Uh, and so that poll, I think, was probably something the premier was not happy to see. Uh, and, and he wanted to, you know, do some do some damage control. And, and get, because obviously, you know, no one wants to see kids out of class. Uh, parents are, are frustrated. Uh, there's there's a lot else happening, um, you know, with the Ford government too. And so, of course, you know, all eyes are on Queens Park for for other reasons. I thought Colin DeMello, our, our colleague, uh, uh, had asked a great question today when he said, you know, why should unions even trust what you're saying right now? Because uh, on Friday they dropped this huge news bomb about. Uh, taking away some protected greenbelt lands, which I think is, you know, also going to have some some blowback. Uh, no doubt we're, we're already seeing that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for Ford, someone who proclaims, you know, promise made, promise kept, that he's all about the little guy, some of these actions might be punching holes in that. And so I think, you know, for Ford himself, it was important for him to get up there and kind of try to, to change the channel quite a bit. Uh, if it's going to work, I'm not sure that abacus poll suggested that this is not, you know, so damaging to the PCs that uh, it would hurt them in, in the next election. But, you know, 
it, it's still a, the situation is still volatile. We don't know how it's going to really turn out and, and four years is still a long way away. Well, sure. And, and you're right. The, the numbers indicate that, you know, yeah, we're ticked off at him. We're probably still going to vote for him, though. But who knows what's going to happen? And the longer this goes on, the more ag- agitated people are going to get. Uh, let me, before I want to talk about the Green Bell expansion in a second, but let me get back to, to the education minister. He was there standing right beside the premier when he was uh, making this announcement. Uh, but as you say, he didn't speak. Uh, there were no questions directed his way. Uh, I'm always interested in the dynamic and, and how these things are staged. Uh, he's got to be there because he's the minister in charge of education, but he's he's been the Ford Bulldog through this whole thing. I mean, he, he's the one that's been rattling the cage. Uh, I, I'm sure they said, look, it, we don't want you to talk. We don't want you to throw gasoline under the fire. Uh, he's you know, Ford wanted to be the conciliator here, not to poke these guys. Yeah, I, I could see that. And I think also this is kind of interesting, um, an interesting dynamic, because this is all happening with you know, the labor board making a decision on this. There, There's kind of these processes uh, that happen in bargaining and a lot of that happens behind the scenes. And we know that, you know, the, the mediator that was brought in just before this all, you know, negotiations broke down had kind of told both sides, you know, please stop telling reporters everything that's happening at the bargaining table because that's just causing for more tension. Um, both sides were, were well far apart, but, you know, to kind of fight this out in the media, as they say, uh, just make things makes things more difficult at the bargaining table. And so I think that, you know, strategically, that might have been at play here a little bit, because of course, you know, Lecce is in charge of the file. So uh, they might not have wanted, you know, QB to maybe use that as a bargaining chip, chip, like Lecce said this and this at a press conference. I mean, they've kind of been doing that up until now. So I think that maybe it was, you know, uh, trying to not poke the bear anymore, trying to diffuse the situation. Um, uh, I guess we'll see. We'll see if it actually worked in about over an hour when we hear from QP and other unions. Well, uh, if you had to put money on it, <laughs> Sabrina, uh, are they going to accept the offer? I mean, it's not really a formal offer. And so I think that they're probably going to want to see that. Um, you know, Ford was cagey when he was asked if he would put that offer, you know, to take the bill off the table in writing. Um, that might now get sussed out at the bargaining table or at the Labor Relations Board. But um, I'm not really holding my breath wait on, based on what we've seen so far. <laughs> well, and as you say, they've already had a pre-scheduled press conference for this morning anyway, so we'll see how they're going to react to that. Uh, you've been covering Queen's Park for a long time, so uh, what happened Friday probably came as no surprise to you. Uh, when governments want to make uh, uncomfortable announcements or maybe even unpopular announcements, uh, they usually wait until about 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon and everybody's on their way home and not paying much attention to what's going on. And that's just when this announcement about expansion of the Greenbelt came out. Uh, what are you hearing in the halls of Queens Park as a result of this? A lot of people, not just here in Hamilton, but in other municipalities, are pretty ticked off about this. Yeah. And I mean, just on a personal note, I was too, because I was about to start my weekend and then we got this uh, Friday flip flop. <laughs> but of course, it, it's something important. And so all of us, we all stayed at our desks to to cover it. But but you're right, you know, that, that's what we call a quiet announcement. Um, and, and so it was a bit of a tactic there, I think, because I think the Ford government knows how unpopular uh, this could be with, with certain people. I mean, they are essentially flip-flopping on on a promise that they had made. Uh, we know that, you know, Ford was faced with with public backlash when he had kind of promised, you know, behind closed doors to open up the green belt to developers. He he walked that back, said, you know, the people have spoken, I've listened, and I'm not going to do that. And now 
they are doing that. Uh, you know, uh, they're they're framing it as a bit of a swap. So, you know, they'll be adding nine over nine thousand acres to the green belt, but taking away about seven thousand. Um, environmental advocates say that this is a threat to the entire protected green belt. That it, it still won't really make up because you're still losing, you know, uh, protected acreage. So it, it that's not really a fair trade-off in that sense. Um, but I think that this is a, a big credibility issue for the Ford government. Um, and we, we like to say that, you know, the electorate has a short-term memory that they'll forget about this in four years. And I, I do think that that is what I'm hearing from some conservatives too, you know, get all the unpopular moves out of the way. Uh, and if in four years from now, they can point to, you know, housing, uh, much more housing built, or at least started to get built, that, that will be a win in some corners. But I think that when you keep going after different groups, it's you're slowly chipping away um, and, and people don't forget about things so easily when, when it's kind of piled on. So uh, that was a very unpopular move. Municipalities are you know worried about this, but we're still in the consultation period. And so I think, again, you know, if there's a lot of pushback, uh, then the Ford government might come around and, uh, and, and change their minds somehow. It's interesting, and as you said, uh, the question here is, is accountability, and and you know, can you trust what they're saying? It's a Colin DeMello's question. Uh, as soon as you break your word, and and he vowed, I mean, it wasn't like he said, yeah, you know what, I'm really considering that, you know, we're not going to touch this, you know, it's sacrosanct. But he, during the election campaign, he uh, more than once said, I will not touch the green belt, uh, and now he's done it. So you got to ask yourself, well, well, can you believe anything else he's going to say right now? Yeah, I, I think certainly there's going to be a lot of folks asking themselves that. I think uh, Democracy Watch has proposed, you know, penalties for governments that don't keep their promises. Uh, I, I don't know if we'll end up seeing that. I guess my fear is that this just contributes to the public's, um, you know, disillusionment with politics. And we've already seen voter turnout, you know, at all levels, uh, just take a, a dive. And so I don't know if this will rally people to the polls or, you know, have a chilling effect. And uh, that's, you know, as a journalist, as someone who, uh, you know, obviously is very into democracy, it's, it's kind of a sad thing for me to see personally. Well, you know, and even, uh, you know, Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark uh, last year when they were having the, uh, the, well, shall we say discussion at that time about uh, the, the moraine up around uh, the, the north of Toronto. And uh, he vowed at that time that they will not cut protected areas or do any land swap. So that's exactly what they're doing right now. And, and to a certain extent, I mean, you know, Hamilton's have their problem with the urban boundary expansion and they said there wasn't going to be one. But even then, both the Premier and uh, Minister Clark said, yeah, I, I don't think you're going to do that. So we, we knew something was coming. But this is not just a Hamilton uh, solution. This is a, a province-wide uh, change of, of, of pattern and change of policy right now. And, and you got to figure there's going to be some pushback on this because this bill uh, not only includes that, it also basically takes most of the power away from conservation authorities, uh, their, their advisory power that they usually have in situations like this. And, and what it does, I guess, Sabrina, is plays right into this, uh, you know, this mantra that a lot of people are, are suggesting right now, that this is a government that doesn't give a damn about the environment. You know, I think this is a really big moment for people like Andrea Horvath, um, you know, who's poised to get strong mayor powers. And, you know, we're waiting to see the details of how that will play out in places like Hamilton. But, you know, uh, the province kind of stepping in and, and changing those uh, the, the boundaries there, you know, and, and with, you know, the added goal of housing that I think every 
you know, every party wants to see. Uh, this is a moment for Andrea Horvath to, you know, push back. I mean, she was official opposition leader for, for so long. She kind of knows for it and, and knows how to play against him a little bit. And so I think that this could be, you know, a, a crusade for Horvath to take on and, you know, push back on with the province. But obviously, you kind of have to play it a little bit both ways because the province is the one that gives you these these stronger powers. And so I guess we'll see how it plays out politically. But at the end of the day, you know, the province, the Ford government in particular, with this huge majority, can kind of do whatever they want right now. Well, listen, you've got a busy day ahead of you with these announcements and the reaction to it. So I, I appreciate you taking the time with us this morning. Uh, thanks so much for this, Sabrina. I'll let you get back to work now. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Sabrina and Angie, publisher of the Queen's Park Observer. Uh, with the uh, unexpected uh, announcement, of course, about the Ford government offering uh, to drop the uh, back-to-work legislation if QP agrees to get back into the classroom. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting piece I read over the weekend. Uh, there's a big election going on in the United States, of course, tomorrow. They call the midterm elections, but there's so much at stake here. Uh, the Republicans versus the Democrats, but even ideologies within those two political parties. And the ideology, of course, that has been making headlines for the last little while now is the new right. Now, this is not about liberals and conservatives. This is about extremism. And it's a concern, uh, not just in the United States, but in many other countries, including Canada. Well, there's a great uh, piece that was written about this that appears uh, in theconversation.com. It's called Why the Ideology of the New Right is So Dangerous. Uh, the author joins us right now. Johannes Steisinger is, uh, of course, a professor at McMaster University and assistant professor of philosophy at McMaster University. Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for inviting me, Bill. It's really great we, to we, be on radio. Well, and, and this is so relevant right now. The, 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 your timing of getting this written and published uh, is not just because of the, the midterms that are going on tomorrow, but the, there's a growing movement here. That and, and I guess what's concerning an awful lot of people, it, it, this is not just a political movement. This is a social movement that's having an impact on so many aspects of our lives right now. Yes, you said already two very important things. The first thing you said, that's not about progressive versus conservatives, but it's really about the radicalization of politics and how um, a very extreme group has created um, frameworks to understand our world and influence and how they are influencing our politics and also as you say how we live together so this is really something what makes the new right new is that it is not only about politics it is what they themselves called metapolitics and metapolitics simply means they want to give us frameworks and concepts how to understand our daily experience and they have been very successful in creating we could say these motives how people ordinary people politicians to understand crises that um, concern us all like the economic crisis the social crisis and what is really sad and what also plays out again in the american election in the midterm election is that um, the, the field is left to these ideas. So there is not really, there is not a comprehensive response, a com comprehensive program, either from moderate conservatives or from liberals, how to respond to inflation, how to respond to um, the leftover, the economic problems that arise through the pandemic or even earlier through the um, financial crisis in 2008. So this is really something we all can work on in thinking and experience how, how to think about how we understand our world and how we find really solutions, also economic and social solutions for these issues. This mindset, though, is, is not brand new. It's been around for generations, I, I would think, uh, if not decades and, and, and centuries. How 
but we always kind of consider them, Professor. Well, that's the fringe. You know, that, that they're a little strange and weird, but you know, they're not going to really be harmful to too many people. Uh, they're growing almost on a on a monthly basis now, growing in their contribution to controlling the narrative of the, the political and social narrative here. How did that happen? Yeah, this is um, they they made some shifts in how they present themselves. So, um, especially in Europe, but also less in the United States, but especially in Europe. They, they don't present themselves anymore as these clear-cut neo-Nazi groups. They talk a little differently. They present themselves as patriotic saviors, as um, people who are simply concerned about migration and so on. And in Europe, they have dropped completely talk about race and speak about ethnocultures. Now, I said already, that's a little different in the United States. But even in the United States, um, one sees that they, that simply, that, that, that they are more focused on responding, for example, to the culture wars and so on. So they are, they really did take up much more what is we could say on the news and um, and 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 in a language that is accessible and that is that has a much broader appeal than let's say fifty years ago. Because you're right, and then this is also how I came to work on this. My field of research is actually Nazi ideology and how philosophers contributed to the rise of National Socialism. And when I did this project, in our world, in some sense, a lot of these ideas came back and are returning right now. And that's why that got me interested also in working about what is happening today. Why are these ideas coming back and how they are coming back? So to make this a little more clearer, maybe, um, especially in Europe, there's not more, much talk about biological racism. It's really about how cultures can't live together, which is a dangerous and problematic idea. Uh, yeah, but the, the, they, you're right. They've changed their messaging. I mean, they're not just preaching right now. Uh, they're they're looking at the, at the economic issues as I guess they did in Germany back in the 1930s, uh, and and the economic crises that many people are facing here right now, and they're, they're, the message seems to be twofold here, Professor. First, we know your pain, we feel your pain, and secondly, we're going to tell you who to blame for it. Yes, that is you're completely right about that. And what what I want to add is is two. They are also simply um, they use strategies. They use um, in in the sense of. For example, they adapt their they adapt their symbols in in in, in Europe. They often they present themselves as youth movements and they they um, target young people a lot. They uh, they use um, social media a lot and they really focus on using social media. And one really would also have to think about how actually the algorithm and and how social media supports this kind of messaging, this kind of radical messaging, this kind of easy messaging. It is. They give a solution and they tell you who to blame and what to do differently in very in, in very easy terms. But things uh, the world is usually much more complex. So one, this is something I find very important when one thinks about what to do against it. Really, we need the spaces in our society where people can come together and discuss and really develop and also that they have the time and the energy for that. So that's why things like what's happening right now here in Ontario, namely the labor strike, is so important. So... People really need the space in their life to, um, in in some sense, not to not only follow what they read on Facebook, but really to engage with each other and to find also the, the time and the space and the energy to, um, yeah, to to be open to these more complex understandings of how how the world works. Well, and and we've seen this uh, manifest itself in so many different ways. The 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 Ottawa insurrection, of course, earlier this year, uh, that's being investigated in Ottawa right now as we speak. And, and so many other issues like this. Uh, and, and what they tend to do here, I guess, Professor, and I wanted to get your perspective on this, because it's included in the piece. 
uh, is is the, the, they wrap their messaging around the fact that we are patriots. We're the real Canadians. We're the real Americans, whatever they or Germans, whatever the case might be. Uh, you know, we're the ones that really love this country, and the people that we put in charge here are the ones that are ruining it. In other words, they they attack the institutions and say they are the the true patriots of that particular country, and it, it makes the I guess the message easier for some people to swallow. Yes, so there is this 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 is something this idea of an un, that there is a liberal elite that destroys um, the rootedness of people, that destroys the nation, and that also. That, that only works for its own pocket. So this is something we have really seen a lot in the in the trucker convoy because it was very much targeted against um, Trudeau himself, also personally. And yeah, so it is. So this is. Man, but as you said already, actually before this is this is actually a long tradition in in far right thought to be against a liberal elite, to be anti-liberal, and to be against a certain kind of elite. But what is important here is also to point that this is usually. One shouldn't take this maybe too seriously when one thinks, for example, where the leaders come from, like Donald Trump, for instance, and for whom these ideas then really work. So this is something I, I talk about in my piece when we think about the Brexit. And um, and there was this messaging, um, taking back control. So there was this idea, since there's one British nation, one British culture, that everybody profits equally from this decision. But that's usually not, that is simply not the case. So because there is a difference between the interest of non-elite members of a culture and of a society and elite members of a society. So again, what we see here now when I'm talking about this is that the, the problem is not to criticize elites. So we need a critical, um, um, we need, we have to be vigilant also when it comes to um, thinking about what our elites are doing. But the problem is again, from the right, a conspiracy that is co conspiracy theory that is connected with it that the liberals organize migration to destroy the rootedness of nations then this idea of rootedness of nations that there are these um yeah th these uniform um cultures given cultures and that you belong to them by birth and so on so the problem is always we see and even i talked um i i, I talked when i go out i sometimes talk with people who were very much for example um against uh, covid um, 19 measures and so on and what is what i always find stunning in talking with such people they they make one two steps in the right direction and then it goes down and this is something we see here too the anti-elitism in itself is not the problem the problem is how it is set up and this is why I said before it's so important to um, to think these things through and to be critical also when somebody seemed to be on the right track, to say this in that way. But it runs so contrary to, to what we're talking about here when, when as an economic recovery after COVID and restrictions that went in place, uh, you know, governments of, of all stripes are saying we need more immigrants right now to fill these jobs. We, we can't fill the jobs that are here. Uh, and, and we need people. That's been the basis and that's been the foundation for this country as it was for the United States. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, uh, what, what the, the new right uh, starts to talk about is the great replacement theory. In other words, don't let new people into this country because they're going to take your jobs. They're going to, you know, they're going to ban your religions. They're going to, I mean, they come up with all of these ideas. It's, it's the fear factor, really, I guess, isn't it? Yes, no, fear, yes, they play with the fears of the people. And again, um, um, two things are important here. It are, not, it are not the migrants who cut jobs. It are not the migrants who undermine the rights of workers. It's actually the government of Ontario who is doing this right now. And it are not, it, it are companies who... Um, um, who who prefer giving more, um, giving giving the profits to their shareholders and not to their employees, 
to um, that they have more salaries and so on. So again, the problem is the problem are not the migrants. The problems lie somewhere else. And the other thing is, again, cultural diversity is something first, and this is very important. So this idea that there are uniform cultures is simply false. And, they, and cultures within, also within a culture, there's usually more diversity even than when you look, than when you compare with other cultures. And it's really also important to embrace this inner diversity of cultures. And the third thing I want to say again, that gets back to something I said already before, people need spaces in their life to have the same kind of um, of experience with other cultures than some, as somebody as, as I can have. So I'm a university professor, I'm in a very privileged position, and I can experience encounters with people from all over the world in a very positive way. And one needs the social and economic conditions in one's life, again, also simply time to experience um, the confrontation with something new, with something different and something positive. And it is something positive. It is something we can learn from, we can learn from others, we grow from. But again, it's so important that we in our society create ideologically, ideologically socially and economically this condition that everybody can have this positive encounters with others, because at the end, it are positive encounters. There are always going to be people who are disenchanted. We understand that no matter what's going on. Uh, but the economic woes right now that, that we're experiencing because of the pandemic and, and the economic downturn as a result of that, uh, was that fertile ground for, for a movement like this to start to, to fester? Yes, and even even much broader. So we have this, for example, um, also economists open, often talk about the epidemic of loneliness. And it is a big issue already among teenagers. There are high suicide rates in teenager, among teenagers in the United States, the richest country in the world. And so and here, um, the messaging of the new right with this politics of belonging, we give you a home, you have a home, there is something people care for you, is something that's that that is that is seen as welcoming as welcoming from and young men are especially um, prone to becoming part of um, um, of these right wing circles. So because it's also often affiliated with these ideas of um, 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 getting back a traditional form of masculinity. So um, the focus on tradition is also very important for these for these for these groups. So, but again, the point I want to make is actually there is an, an, indeed an issue, and this is something we, I, I as a philosopher, find important. Economic issues are also always psychological and social issues, but also psychological issues. And this is something we should take very seriously. What should an economy, what should our economic order give to us? And it might not be only material wealth. It is also something like, for example, um, not being alone, having community. Again, this is something where we see why maybe things people don't understand why they are so important are very important. For example, labor unions. I come from a country where unions have a much are much more important than here in Canada. And one aspect of that is that it that it creates a home for workers, a home a ho outside the family in some sense where they can come together. And that's very important because we need community. And so we shouldn't leave it to these right wing groups, to far right thought, to create the reply, the the answer to this into this problem, to this epidemic of loneliness and to the isolation that is part of modern life. Uh, it's a great read, and I, I encourage listeners to uh, go and check it out when they've got some time, why the ideology of the new right is so dangerous. Professor, thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you for inviting me, and um, you really have a great program. Thank you so much. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you so much. Uh, Professor Johannes Steisinger from uh, McMaster University talking about the uh, movement of the new right 
And we'll see, I guess, tomorrow's U.S. election, how much of an impact that's going to have down there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the announcements uh, that came late Friday that's uh, got a lot of people on city council here in Hamilton miffed uh, is the announcement uh, that they are going to override Hamilton's decision uh, not to expand in the urban boundary. This is a very controversial uh, decision city council made in the last term, and that was not to expand the urban boundary. They thought we can build all the houses we're going to need for the next couple of generations uh, right here in the existing core. And, uh, well, the immediate reaction from both the premier and the municipal affairs minister is, uh-uh, I don't think so. And uh, they said they were going to review it and probably change it or overrule that. So uh, this is not, it shouldn't be anyway a surprise uh, because the government had already said that, no, what Hamilton is proposing here is not going to get the job done. So to the surprise of nobody, I guess, uh, they announced that uh, that was what they were going to proceed. Now, th- this is separate apart from from their talk about expanding into the Greenbelt. There may actually be some incursions around this area, too. We'll see what the map's going to look like. Uh, but it's a, a change in policy and a change of, well, some people consider a broken promise now that the government said they weren't going to do this. However, uh, we still need houses. And uh, we've talked about this in the past that, you know, we've got to have a, a, an array of different housing types here for people to put a roof over their head over the next little while as our population continues to grow. So uh, one of the folks that are actually kind of intrigued about uh, the government announcements over the last little while are the home builders uh, who are going to be a key element of this, obviously. They're the ones that are going to build the homes that we need, the domiciles that are so necessary here. Luca Bucci is the CEO for the Ontario Home Builders Association, and he joins us on the program to talk about the announcements and the, the implications of the, both of those, actually. Luca, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Well, it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you about, uh, first of all, the the urban boundary situation here in Hamilton. Uh, council vowed, and I know there was a heated debate about this in the last term of council, uh, that they thought they could build enough housing, the, the housing that we were going to need going forward, within the existing urban boundary. The province immediately disagreed. I know members of your association uh, made presentations to council and said, no, that's not going to work at all. Uh, th- there's got to be a, a certain feeling of pleasure, I guess, within the members of your organization that, look, at now, now we can move forward and get started on this. Yeah, and ultimately, the people who are going to benefit from this announcement are the new home buyer. I mean, you've mentioned it at the top of the show segment here, and we've talked about this before on your show, but we're 1.5 million homes short from restoring affordability and attainability in the housing market. And what that means is it's harder for young people who are looking at it in the housing market to buy a home because there's not enough supply. In the best year we had on record for housing starts, we built 100,000 homes. Now, we need to build 1.5 million new homes over the next 10 years, and that's essentially a 50% increase on our best year, year over year for the next 10 years. So we need to look at all options that are on the table. You know, you and I have talked about on this show before, one of the key elements of that is looking at whether or not we need more land to build. And in the city of Hamilton, um, more land is required to build more homes. You know, this this urban boundary issue has been on the top of the political agenda for over a year and a half now. Um, and our members in Hamilton uh, commissioned a survey with with Nano's research, a very reputable research firm. And we found that almost 40% of Hamiltonians want the urban boundary to expand if that means that they can get more homes online more quickly. So, and, and we had conflicting surveys, and we all know about the online survey that another group did that said it was overwhelming support to maintain the urban boundary, uh, which is frankly a moot point at this stage because the government's already ruled on this and as we've mentioned on this program whether you like the decision or not uh they can do it just like they had the right to to, to reduce toronto city council and they did it and the courts ruled on their side i mean we all as municipalities hamilton london toronto exist well not toronto they've got an exception 
exist at the at the pleasure of the province. They're the ones that grant the charters, and they can overrule municipal decisions in this situation. Uh, and their justification for this was that, look, at, uh, the council got it wrong, and it's only going to cause problems down the road, so let's just do this right right from the get-go. So what, what does this do now to, to the planning and what your organization can do now? Do you, do you move forward with applications? Uh, I know that, uh, you know, some of your members have, have already purchased land in some of these areas and, and we're concerned that, well, they aren't going to be able to do anything about it. Uh, how does this impact what we need here and how quickly can your members get moving on this and start looking at what we can do and where we can do it? I think first things first, it puts our members in a position where they, where they can deliver on a good that's in high demand. Um, there's a lot of members outside of the urban boundary who've been campaigning for quite some time based off the arguments that they're ready to build and they're ready to build now. Um, and they're willing to work with the city to build in a way that is, you know, environmentally sustainable um, and ensuring that, you know, what they do build can be serviced adequately on the city's current infrastructure. Um, so, so we're ready to go. I mean, we're excited. We know what the challenge ahead of us looks like. Um, we need to help the province get to that 1.5 million home mark over the next 10 years. And a lot of our members who own that land outside of the urban boundary and a lot of our members who own land inside of the urban boundary are, are excited to work with the municipality to get that housing supply online um, in a way that is, uh, you know, expedient and in a way that's going to restore affordability and attainability into the, into the housing market, just so we can give the new homeowners an opportunity to purchase that, that new home that they've been looking for for quite some time. But you've seen the reaction to this, I'm sure, on social media over the last couple of days. Uh, and Luca, I wanted you to comment on that. Uh, some are suggesting that now what home builders are going to do is just say, well, to hell with infill developments. We're just going to go and, and pave over the green lands now. And that's, that's where we're going to build all our houses. Is, is that the case? Um, I think our industry is still committed to making sure there's a right balance of different types of housing. Uh, we understand that you know, housing that's built on on outside of the urban boundary or in these lands that are going to be built in, brought, that are brought in, are probably going to cater to a specific demographic. But there is still a need to build that high density kind of focused development inside the urban boundary and primarily downtown along the LRT line. That's going to be more appealing to you know young professionals looking for that kind of twenty minute lifestyle where all your services are within a twenty minute walking radius of where you are. I think the problem that we see today in the housing market is that you know municipalities have just been making decisions to restrict the building of any kind of housing that we've gotten to the point where there's such a demand for condos, single family homes, stacked towns. And what the decision the decision that the government made on Friday is going to put us on a path where we can free up some of that demand so that we can, you know, build outside of the urban boundary so people who are looking to upgrade their homes who are currently living downtown in a condo can do so and free up that unit for someone who's looking to get into a market um, who might not have, you know, the requirements that are associated with with a family or, or a more settled lifestyle. You know, building homes is a good thing um, for everybody who wants a home because the more homes that are in the market, the more supply that you have, the more affordable and attainable those homes are going to become, and the more people can participate in the dream of home ownership. Uh, one of the other elements that, uh, they, as a matter of fact, it was one of the talking points that uh, the group that was opposed to expanding into the, anywhere in the urban boundary uh, used was that uh, if that were to happen, and it looks like it's going to now, uh, that your members are just going to go out there and build a whole bunch of monster homes, which are you know going to take up all the land anyway. Uh, I've, I've talked to a couple of your members, some of the prominent members of, in this community that have been building for quite some time, uh, who have simply denied that and said, look, it's not economically feasible to build those kind of homes. That's the, We can't do that. That's not what we need, and that's not what we're going to build. What's your reaction to that? That's right. Our, our members always build to what the market wants. And right now, given all the different input costs that are associated with building a home, i.e. development charges, parkland charges, you know, 
increasing interest rates that are are putting upward pressures on loans that we need to uh, facilitate the construction of of homes are, are creating the environment where you know those big monster homes that um i guess some of the opponents of the expansion have been talking about just might not be a market reality uh at the end of the day our members are in a business just like everybody else where they're trying to meet a demand that is put on them by the people who are participating in the market and right now people are looking for sustainable housing options and our members are open to to listening to what those options look like and you know in the urban boundary outside of the urban boundary or in these lands that are being brought into the urban boundary um you know you're not going to be building 40 or 50 story condos at this point in time but i you're not going to also be building you know 6500 square foot mansions because the market won't won't sustain that right right now we understand that it's it's a delicate balancing act and then the decision that the government made on friday allows us to achieve the right balance between you know that that single kind of uh that single family home that 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 condo downtown you know and anything that comes in between but the opposite where you're restricting that availability in the market further restricts the supply of housing and continues to perpetuate the system that we have right now where housing is 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 very expensive and people who are looking to get into the market don't have an opportunity to do so just because those options aren't online in the supply that require that it that in the supply amounts that will facilitate you know an affordable price point well, and the other element to this too is, and it's an economic issue, I guess. And I, I know the people that are adamantly opposed to this don't seem to want to, you know, embrace some of these things. But it, from an economic standpoint, as a developer, and I'm not a developer, but I've talked to a number of them over the years, uh, it makes more sense to build if you've got a big tract of land to build ten houses as opposed to one big one. I mean, you're, you're going to get a return on your investment. And I know that for some people, profit is a dirty word, but I mean, th- that that has to factor into this. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, too, I mean, a lot of the plans that they have for development on that land have to come through, um, you know, decision making bodies that are that are, you know, in the city um, and members of the community are going to have opportunities to have input on what kind of ho- homes are going to be built on these lands through the public engagement processes that um, complement those processes. So, you know, a developer just can't go in or a builder can't just go on into a piece of land and say, I'm going to build one home. They have to pull the permits for the home. They have to submit a site plan to city officials. And city officials then have to make the decision as to whether or not that is the right type of development for that kind of land. So, you know, this isn't just carte blanche for developers to build these these mega mansions outside. This is an opportunity for our members um, and the municipality to work together to find the right kind of balance of housing options that are going to meet the demands that are placed on the system by people looking to get into the market and the new homeowner. And the more home, the more homes you can construct, whether it's a condo, a town, a townhome, or a single-family home, the only person that stands to benefit, or sorry, the person who stands to benefit the most, is that new home buyer because you're going to open up market space for them to purchase an attainable and affordable product, which is something you're not seeing in Hamilton right now. How do you how do you build a neighborhood now? I mean, you know, in the old days, and I'm talking about some of the older sections of of Hamilton, London, Toronto. What you can, yeah, I mean, houses are. You know, they're, they're very close together. They all have tiny little backyards. Uh, very little thought of green space back in those days. So it just doesn't exist in many cases like this. Uh, you look at some of the newer developments, especially in the last 10 or 15 years, and, and there seems to be a game plan there. There's, there's green space. There are bike paths. It, 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 they're, they're building a sense of community. Is, is that mindset still going to be employed? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, people, um, particularly, you know, young people who have grown up primarily you know, within um, urban centers, we're looking to kind of expand outside into into the suburbs. Are looking for that sense of community, 
Um, I think that's where a lot of the demand is going to be placed as we continue to to build homes, you know, in these new lands, not only in Hamilton, but, you know, the government also made decisions to bring new lands in um, to the urban boundary and a lot of different municipalities across the board. But that sense of community, I think, is very important to the new homeowner and, you know, our members and, and, and builders across the province understand that. And again, we're here to meet a demand that's put on that's put on us by by the market, by that new homeowner. And we're very conscious of, you know, making sure that we fulfill that demand in a way that people will continue to buy our product. So, you know, that sense of community and then that kind of community feel is very important to our members um, and is very important for them to kind of achieve if they're going to put out a sustainable product into the market. Well, because I've seen examples of this and, you know, because, I, I, well, I'll give you the neighborhood I'm, I'm living in in Ancaster. I mean, we're right on the, the cusp of the, the conservation lanes, one of the big swaths of the conservation lane. And I wasn't around when they built this development. It was a number of years ago, I guess. But uh, there was an environmental sensitivity to this. I mean, you know, the, we've got our little enclave here on our street. Uh, I can look right out my window right now, and there's the conservation lands. Uh, mm -hmm. Right in the middle of this enclave is a, is a marshy area, with the, which they've maintained, and the Conservation Authority maintains. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, when I walk the dog at 7 o'clock in the morning, I run into deer and, and a number of other things walking down the street. Uh, it's, it's not such a, just a, you know, that it's going to be like that all the time. But, you know, I, when people simply are going to pave everything over, uh, oftentimes that's not allowed and still not going to be allowed, no matter what the, 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 the rhetoric might be in situations like that. There has to be some environmental sensitivity, doesn't there? I, I, I agree. And I, and I think over the past, the, the benefit of, of working with um, the previous government over the past 15 years is that there's a lot of these environmental checks and balances that were put into place to ensure that development is done in a sustainable way. So even when you're expanding into the urban boundary or sorry, outside of the urban boundary, or when these lands are being brought into the urban boundary, rather, you know, there are still those environmental demands that our, our, our members have to kind of adhere to, to ensure that we're building homes in a way that is, that is taking care of a lot of the important environmental features that are quite frankly regulated by, you know, both uh, the conservation authorities and the provincial government. So it's not like our members are going in there with bulldozers and, and concrete pavers and saying, you know, this patch of green is now going to become a pavement with, you know, 10 mega homes or, or, or 100 towns. No, we still have to go through a process that, that, that is equipped with checks and balances to ensure that we are, you know, taking care of endangered species appropriately, to making sure that we are um, not impacting floodplains, to make sure that we are um, building in a way that, that you know, allows um the the ecosystems within those environments to function properly none of that goes away by bringing this land into the urban boundary what this does it allows us to build more homes in a sustainable way get more supply online help us reach that 1.5 million mark over the next 10 years and bring forward a more attainable and affordable product because there's more supply online to the new home buyer who's been looking to get into the market in a very very uh, tumultuous time for 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 homeowners and home buyers i got about a minute left here and i know your time is tight as well uh, one of the concerns that you guys raised over the last couple of years, and even the government has talked about, is cutting through the red tape at the municipal level so that these approvals can be evaluated and 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 move forward on this. Are you comfortable yeah. that they're making steps in that direction? I think the legislation we saw two weeks ago uh, through Bill 23 is the right first step. And I think now it's up to municipalities and new councils to follow the provincial government's lead. Um, and look at some of the policies that they're putting in the window and start working with our industry and, and the community to find the most sustainable way to implement those policies so that we can build housing quickly and we can get that process streamlined to bring more housing supply online. Um, the provincial government stepped up in a big way two weeks ago. It's really exciting to see what the municipalities are going to do, but I'm confident that, you know, 
all governments are focused on bringing more housing supply online. And I'm confident that both municipalities and the provincial government will continue to work together to help us get uh, attainability and affordability back into the housing market. Luca Bucci, who is the CEO of the Ontario Home Builders Association. Luca, as always, thanks so much for this. Appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. You too. And and I get the concern. I, I told you, you know, environmental sensitivity has to be part of this and has been uh, part of the planning for the last number of years. I mean, we, we didn't used to do that sort of thing. And I think we're smarter than that now. And I, this is not going to be a situation. I don't think any municipality, Hamilton, London, Burlington, anybody, is going to allow you to just plow over and start, you know, going over sensitive lands. There's got to be some some accommodation made for environmental sensitivity in wetlands, even if the province doesn't seem to think so. It, the individual municipalities still have sway in this decision. And, and, and you know, it's going to be up to them now. Everybody's going to have to work a little harder. I know people that have been planners. You know, in other words, uh, you get a guy who buys the land. He's a developer. Here's what I want to do. He hires a planner to say, here's how it should look. And, uh, and they've had to be smarter over the last number of years, too, because they have to uh, accommodate the environmental sensitivities and build around them and sometimes incorporate them. Most of the time, incorporate them. And, and that's got to continue. I mean, this is not just going to be row housing, row housing, row housing, row housing, because I don't think the city is going to allow that. And I, I think developers are smart enough to understand that they can't even go before a, a city council and, and say, you know, just rubber stamp this so we can do this. There's still a process in place here. I'm, I'm not crazy about some of the regulations that the government seems to be doing and end run around themselves. Uh, but the municipalities really have to reevaluate what's going to happen here. And they've got to develop a standard and say, this is the standard that has to be met. And the home builders in the communities around here, I think they get that. They understand that. And for the most part, and there might be a couple of bad apples. I don't know. I've been, don't, I'm not in the industry, but for the most part, they seem to understand what needs to be done and where it needs to be done. Anyway, we'll find out how the councils are going to respond to this in the next little while and, uh, and just what kind of proposals are going to come forward. Um, and we don't even know if we're going to meet the targets. I mean, you know, as, as Luca has and others in the industry have said, uh, you look at the numbers right now and, and you know, I'm, we're not even sure if we can attain what's going to happen. And I've got doubts about building more housing as, as the answer. It's part of the answer. It's a big part of the answer. But is it really going to bring the housing prices down to the fact where they're going to be more affordable? And I'm not so sure about that. There's a lot of concerns that uh, still have to be addressed here. So this is this is not the end of the conversation. Uh, this is just moving on to the next chapter of it. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.